Welcome to Nestle and Dormer. We're up to episode 11. This is your chat about old football as regularly as we can make it. It's, we're back after quite a long festive break and then some other stuff that got in the way as well, but we are finally back. I am Lee Calvert. I'll be your host, co-stroke, co-conversationalist tonight. And with us, we've got, as usual, uh, well, usual sometimes, but mostly usual, Mr. Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello, as in you couldn't get anyone else, so... So, so you're always doing yourself down. No, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, and also joining us tonight, because tonight we're going to be talking about West Ham in some detail, particularly the late 90s and Palo de Cano period, is is journalist and top man, Mr. Jacob Steinberg. Hello, Jacob. Hello. Hello. You can get in touch with Ness Dorma podcast on Twitter, at Ness Dorma pod. There's a website, nessundormapod.com, and you can get in touch, uh, contact at nessundormapod.com. If you want to email us and let us know what you think or suggest anything. So as I mentioned, we're talking West Ham later on. We're going to talk about a legend as well. We're going to have a new feature where we pick and chat about a legend every now and again. And we're going to have a legend this, this week. We'll come on to that later on. But first of all, well, I suppose we have to talk about another legend, really. We can't let it, the passing of Cyril Regis go by without having something to note it, who passed away. It's Tuesday to record this. Is it Monday he passed away yesterday? I think it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 59 mm-hmm. years of age, which is absolutely no age at all. A heart attack, I believe. Um, I suppose the first thing with, with me with Cyril Regis is, is I always, I always, well, about him and many people, but I imagine, just imagine what he had to put up with. You can't, though, can you? Like, you no, well, not, not as a white lad from Lancashire, no, not really. I can't, but yeah. I'm trying to imagine. Trying to, it's difficult to empathise, I suppose, because you really do have no idea, do you? No, you don't. He seemed, I say this as if I knew him, which I didn't, but he seemed remarkably kind of not... Well, let me try that again. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, 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 he always struck me that he had no bitterness at all about going through what must have been horrendous experiences for most of his career, but particularly in those early days at West Brom. Um, and everything you kind of read and people say, and this is before he died, you know, sometimes when people die, you get kind of certain things that are airbrushed out of history. But the impression we read you got is just always an exceptionally nice bloke. Um, and yeah, so was, important in English football, really. And there was a kind of serenity about him. Despite and, and and that was massively juxtaposed against how sort of non-serene he was with the ball at his feet, wasn't he? He was this incredible, powerful, pacey finisher. And then, but then this, he just seems to all the crap that went on. He just seems to be right over the top of that as well. Yeah, I don't know how you get that kind of strength to do that. It's interesting. You wonder if he should have played more for England. I think he played like five times. He did, yeah. And, and weirdly, out, between like eighty-two and eighty-seven, it was really yeah, spread out. Surprised he didn't play more. In his West Brom at all in his West Brom years, but yeah, I mean, I'm not saying he should be a regular or anything, but you look at some of the people who got caps up front in the 80s, and you think, yeah, he wasn't bad. Because actually, Johan Cruyff wanted him to replace Marco van Basten, which is a little known. Yeah, I've heard that. Cruyff's, in, yeah. Cruyff's book. Yeah, so he um he was after him for about six months around I think it was 86, 87 when van Basten's move was on the cards, and Ajax kept making a mess of the deal, and then they made a bollocks of another deal to sign Rabo Madja, the um guy who scored the back in the European Cup final and Cruyff walked because of that. So yeah, it's not quite interesting that someone like Cruyff um, rated him that highly. To replace Van Basten, I mean, come on. That is quite incredible. <laughs> is, isn't it? Really? Especially when you think he kind of bimbled around and been at Coventry and things like that at yeah, that time. Yeah, I find that absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's hard to play that game, isn't it, of, you know, what would they be worth now? Something that always kind of comes up, isn't it? But you do wonder with people like Regis what they were, because he, he was kind of a bit... Was he a bit like Lukaku with a bit more pace, I suppose? With... I don't know if he was quite as... I don't know. 
I don't think of him quite like Lukaku. I don't, it feels like what the sort of striker we've spoken about in the past who just doesn't really exist yeah, anymore. Yeah, it's true, actually, yeah. It's sort of like he was a bit like someone like Harford, but he was quicker and probably technically better. Um, yeah, quite dynamic. But, I mean, you said you said about what he's dealt with and he seems like a really nice bloke. He went into become an agent, didn't he, afterwards? And he was... And he was and it's amazing how many people have come out and basically said, one, what an incredibly genuinely nice bloke he was, how he's incredibly humble, how he helped loads and loads of people out. And I've got a bit of a personal story about how humble he is, actually. When I was, uh, many years ago, around about 1995, 96, I um, was working in a hotel in North Wales, and it was then, that was when Cyril Regis finished, the, I think it was the last professional season he played at Chester City. And he Great. was actually living in this three-star hotel next to the A55 <laughs> in North Wales. And every time he used, to, he used to come into the bar every night, really, when I was working in there. Um, and I did think, I was always very starstruck to see him. I did think, what must it, it's, it can't be great being at the dog end of your career like this and living in this hotel. But more than anything, I think a testament to, to, to anybody, really, he was always incredibly nice to the staff. He was very nice to me. He's very mm-hmm. nice to all the rest of the staff. He always chats here. I was going. I did actually say to him one night. I said, you know, I said to him, I said, what's it like living here after everything, what you've done and stuff. And he just said, he said, well, you know, I just want to make my career last as long as possible because he must have been about thirty-eight then, I think. Yeah, it'd have been well. Yeah, he was well. cracking on for forty. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, a genuinely nice bloke. He ate an absolute shitload of peanuts. That's one <laughs> thing I remember about it. he used to have a peanut bag of peanuts with every single round, half a lager <laughs> and a bag of peanuts every time he came to the bar. But yeah, strength conditioning. Strength, yeah, protein, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so rest in peace, Cyril. Um, it is. I've, I've actually, been, I've strangely been quite moved by it, really. I mean, even though I'm not a baggy like a fan of, and I'm not anything, yeah. but it is something because you do reflect on what he must have gone through, I suppose, and how well he handled yeah. it all. I agree. I think some like it's death is so commonplace these days, like every fucking day. <laughs> some reference point for your childhood is dying, but it does. It did. I think it moved a lot of people more than you know. Most deaths do. That's a terrible yeah. thing to say. But you know what I mean. And it's like, and it's not very often you hear people talking about footballers and breaking down. Dion Dublin did in his interview. Yeah. The Brian Dean interview. I don't. Did you see it, Jacob on the BBC? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really quite moving. Just because he obviously doesn't want to break down, he kind of stops and pauses and tries not to lose it, but just can't help himself. I suppose it says, yeah, it's moving everybody well, no, in ways. You, you go into that in kind of interview thinking. You, you were going to that interview thinking, I'm not going to break down, I'm not going to break down, <laughs> yeah, and then exactly, it's, yeah. it's still too there, too, too raw and everything, you know, your, your emotions get the better of you, and I mean, I, I never ever saw Cyril Regis play, but, that you know, the, the reaction would, would suggest what kind of man he was and what kind of player he was, really. It's a terrible thing, we talk about, like, the Premier League era, that's now at least three, Aston Villa obviously nearly won the league in 1993, that's three of their squad now that have died. Yeah. I think Eggyog's in the squad, Atkinson, was, Regis. Yeah, that is mad, isn't it? Yeah. It makes you feel it's really crazy. like it's quite, yeah, quite um, dispiriting to say the least. Yeah, so, you know, now we've started on that bright note. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, no, fair enough, you know, you have to be a bit sombre talking about these things and rest in peace, Cyril. And yeah, I think English football and football generally is a poorer without you. But let's move on to, you know, is it some more upbeat things and talk about Paolo de Canio's West Ham shall we Jacob is it upbeat will it be an upbeat session do you think uh, it's, it's mixed because it's West Ham but, uh, um, <laughs> I think it I think there are it doesn't end on the highest note I think Paolo de Canio's time at, at West Ham um, and uh, 
there were lots of ups and downs, really, I think, uh, throughout the years. Um, it, it certainly wasn't the easiest of, of characters for anyone to deal with, and especially when Harry Redknapp left uh, West Ham and, and Glenn Moroda took over, uh, De Canio became one of the most difficult players in, in the squad, even though he was the captain. Um, I wouldn't say that he was a captain who necessarily uh, led by example and set the best um, model for, for, for a quite undisciplined squad at the time to, to follow. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, it's um, it's a ro- bit of a roller coaster, and yeah. I think right at the end of it, it's a bit of a crash at, at, at the end. Okay, um, so well, we'll get on to that. So, so let's... it's certainly better than um, than what's going on now. It's more interesting <laughs> than than all that. Well, that's why we talk about football from this period. It is generally more interesting than what's going on now. So um, let's talk. So we're going to talk about the hammers. Is it the hammers or the irons? I never quite. Is it, or is it both? I'm never sure. I think it's both. It's okay. both. Um, I'm going to start this round about 1995. There was a famous United match, of course. Rob, do you want to talk about that match at all? Yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was thinking about that, and um, I was talking about it with someone last night. We were, bizarrely, we were talking about Steve Bruce, and <laughs> before West Ham got relegated, um, we were talking you know, about... Bruce maybe going up at, with, with Villa this season. And I said, well, I'm contractually obliged as a West Ham fan to hate him because before he was the Birmingham manager the day that West Ham went down. That, that was uh, who West Ham were playing on the final day of the uh, 203 season. And Bruce said, I'd love to, I, I want to get revenge on, um, on West Ham for stopping us winning the league. <laughs> uh, so I really want to send them down today. And obviously, ever since, and West Ham fans who were pretty much prepared for going down at that point didn't you know didn't see it as <laughs> sports type behavior um and uh i pointed out to a fellow united uh, fan actually uh, john Bruin, i'm sure that you know him rob um pointing out the west ham actually beat blackburn they, they, they did they did black uh, west um manchester united the favor a few weeks beforehand beating blackburn 2-0 at yeah, we, park and united yeah, we, couldn't follow through that's right. But Blackburn was starting their Devon Lock, weren't they? I think. Yeah, I remember yeah. that game. Yeah, Ferguson made a good comment about something like. Yeah, he said something when Blackburn finally met a team who had the same need or hunger or something and they couldn't handle it. Um, and then, funnily enough, when West Ham had nothing to play for, they produced the same <laughs> hunger and need and uh, drew with United. But anyway, that's another story. Well, I mean, it had been, it was the same in uh, when they had nothing to play for in 92 as well. Yeah. And. Um, the obscene I think effort. that was the game. Uh, yeah, that was the obscene effort game uh, that, that Fergus, the, the word that Ferguson used, obscene, when West Ham were already relegated and an absolute shock at all season. And uh, then Lee Brown's shinned volley from the edge of the area. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm absolutely sure he didn't mean that, looking at the replays of it and everything. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I, I, did that properly stop United winning the league? Or was it kind yeah. of already... No, United were on a slippery slope, but that I think that was the night when you thought, oh shit, it's... I think that was the night also that I think put it out of United's control, I'm pretty sure. Because they'd, they'd, um, they'd lost on the Monday as well, but um, they were still, I think if they won the last three, they would have won it. That was the third last game, and yeah. It, but, just, but it was more like the, the, the fact that happened, the way it happened, the goal, manner of the goal, I think it was then everyone started to think, yeah, this just isn't going to happen this year. Um, but West Ham always took a huge amount of pleasure, didn't they, from those yeah. uh, those victories or the draw in ninety four five? No, I, re- I remember um, walking uh, into the ground in maybe two thousand and two before crazy. Do you remember the, the crazy five three when when yeah. Beckham scored an absolutely brilliant goal? Yeah, uh, Beckham scored a few brilliant goals at, at West Ham, and just there was a different kind of feel around the ground. Um, 
you know, c- comparable to like a, a big London derby against Chelsea or or um, or Spurs. But you never really get that sense before like Liverpool come or, or these days when Manchester City turn up at West Ham. It's it, it, West Ham United is just a strange big game that seems to bring something out of uh, I think both teams really. Just one um, one more. One more quick thing before we talk about West Ham rather than Man United. <laughs> from that from that period, the second game, I think, of the 95-6 season, Marco Buga sack on Gary Neville. If on the world yeah, sack yeah. I've seen. It's like a straight red in those days. Now it'd be like straight to prison for six months. <laughs> do, do we want do, do you want to do we shall we talk about the nineteen ninety six uh, what's renowned as the disastrous sign is it was Marco Bugas, wasn't there? There was yeah, well, Bugas was um, Bugas was ninety five, right. uh, so he was the he he was you know the one of the first foreign players you know at the start of the Premier League era when um, they started to look a bit further abroad and everything, and um, and they found some they, they find some players, and, and Harry Redknapp started using his renowned scouting skills and everything, <laughs> and in came Marco Bugas, this Dutch striker. Uh, so at the start of the 95-96 season, West Ham actually had a pretty decent season by their standards at that time. They, I don't think they were ever in uh, any kind of relegation um, trouble throughout that season. They were comfortably mid-table. But at the start of it, they um, they had this Dutch striker who came on and uh, chopped down <laughs> Gary Neville. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, And then the, the story was that he went off to live in a caravan and he disappeared. Um is that true? That Which story. I don't think it was actually true. I think that was a. I think I seem to recall doing a Joy of Six on strange signings and um, weird football stories, and it wasn't true uh, that that he'd that he'd gone off to live in a caravan. I think it was just. I don't know if it was something that um, that kind of went went off from there. I think it actually was cleared up in a in a letter to the Fiver or something like that. Was <laughs> Looking at this joy of six at the moment, but yeah, he didn't. I don't think he actually didn't went go off to live in a in a caravan um, at that time. Uh, Another example of how the West fiction Ham, is West something that we rather director, keep, yeah. Peter Story. Yeah, West Ham's managing director Peter Story was forced to deny rumours that Bugas had been deemed mentally unfit to play. We had our meeting in the Hilton Hotel in Amsterdam. I didn't see a caravan or a tent for that matter. <laughs> it's absolute nonsense. Um, I think it just kind of. Uh, it was like a misunderstanding, I think, between a staff member and a journalist, and just went from there. But he was responsible at the same time for one of the most mental tackles in the Premier League. Yeah, Jacob, I wanted to ask you when the when you think is the birth of that really exciting team that we remember. I mean, I know it's easy to say when De Canio joins because he is the player most associated. But obviously, you finished fifth the year before that, and um, I don't know, was it when Kitson and Hartson joined? In '97, or is there another yeah, point? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that they, they, the '96, '97, obviously, it was just after Euro '96. So you had those kind of uh, crazy signings, sudden influx of the foreign players uh, into, into the Premier League, and at West Ham, probably the most famous one would be uh, Florian Radicoy, yeah. who was obviously people remember from the '94 uh, World Cup, one of the stars of that great Romania team. And, um, yeah, he, he must have gone to the Euros as well uh, in England. And they bought him, um, they bought uh, Dimitrescu as well, uh, who must have been at Spurs at the time. Mm. And they had these they had these two guys. And, and um, it just, 
they were, but they were just terrible <laughs> throughout the first half Didn't, of that season. Wasn't, wasn't um, Paolo Futra signed that season as well? Yeah, yeah, they signed Paolo Futra uh, from it. Oh, it must have been maybe he must have come from Atletico Madrid, I think, and or maybe Sporting Lisbon, one of the two. And he he turned up, and the first thing he did was uh, West Ham's number ten was John Monker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wore the number ten shirt, and I think part of one of their future's demands was uh, I'd like the number 10 shirt. I think John Moncur just kind of had to step aside. And the future obviously came and he had a really, really bad, he'd had a bad, he had, he had bad knees, I think already. And um, there's, there's, there was one game where right at the start of his time at West Ham in August, where it was one or two nil down at half time at home to Southampton, they were certainly losing. And I think either he, came off the bench or in the second half he suddenly started turning it on and if you can find it anywhere on YouTube the highlights of this game um, there are probably a lot of people who don't realise uh, quite how good he was it's, he's one of those I think he's one of those names who signed it kind of a little bit obscure um, he's probably just before people started to really uh, get a bit of knowledge of, of, of Spanish football and probably in the people were so focused on uh, on, in, on Italian football in the mm. early 90s and everything and um, but he he just tore them apart and they ended up winning four two, but he just couldn't uh, sustain it after that. I think it's one of, like that game is one of the great sort of cult games. I think um, for, for for a lot of West Ham fans of a certain age, uh, but you'd have to go and look and see how good he was on 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 some kind of streaming service. Uh, so he he disappeared and then um, their their striker beyond Florian Radichoy was um, uh, Ian Dowie, who was in the midst of a awful goal drought um which he kind of ended with a spectacular own goal in a league cup quarterfinal defeat or fourth round defeat to stockport um bullet header uh past whoever the must be ludo mcclosko was must be in the keeper at the time and um and then they 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 played and and that game against stockport was uh, of course the famous harvey nicks florin radichoy story where uh he didn't turn up (laughs) for the game and um Redknapp claimed that he was off shopping in, in, in somewhere in a swanky location in central London and didn't really seem to fancy it. And uh, Rob, will, Rob will probably remember this game as well where, um, you know, Manchester United fans have, um, uh, will always bang on about Cantona's pass in a game at Upton Park in um, uh, uh, December 96. And um, West, it was... Uh, 2-0 to Manchester United with about 15 minutes to go. Beckham had scored. But it was, this was obviously Beckham's season of scoring stunners every single week when he'd scored the, uh, um, the goal from the halfway line against Wimbledon. And he scored a brilliant chip against uh, West Ham from the edge of the area. Really, really good goal. And it looked like it was all over. And Radichoy had come on. He came and a couple of minutes later, he scored a brilliant goal. Then he won, a, I think, uh, then he helped win a penalty um, and it was Julian Dix, of course, blast, almost blasting Schmeichel's head off with the, with the penalty <laughs> and fans coming running. Onto the, you don't really get this anymore. Fans coming running onto the pitch, like a few of them, and sort of ta- like, were taunting and properly in Schmeichel's face and everything. Um, <laughs> but then it just car- it, that that it looked like they were going to sort thing, you know, sort themselves out at that point, and that Radachoy was going to be this great signing. I think he then scored a winner a, a couple of weeks later against a fellow relegation rival, but it just wasn't going anywhere. And it looked in, in come, come January, it looked like they were going down. They'd signed um, 
or they, they, Redknapp keeps, uh, kept signing uh, these uh, sort of foreign uh, mavericks, and he, he brought in a Portuguese number ten uh, called Hugo Porfirio as well. Oh, I don't know yeah. if you remember him, and he scored yeah. this. Uh, it was one of the sort of uh, old school FA Cup moments where they went to Wrexham away in January in the third round, and it was the pitch was covered in snow. You know, nowadays it would ne- the, the game would not get played, and they had the orange ball and. Um, I think the Wrexham keeper came out or something and terrible clearance that got held up in the snow. Porfirio is maybe 30 yards out and instantly just turns and chips it in. He looks like he's going to be a star. Doesn't really turn out that way. They end up losing the replay at home a week later. And <laughs> I think Redknapp is uh, you know, in the last minute or something, a brilliant Wrexham goal. And Redknapp's sort of, people are wanting, you know, he wasn't, I don't think he was necessarily that popular. And a few fans had kind of, viewed him with a bit of suspicion already, I think, because of the, uh, uh, well, so-called part that he played in um, Billy Bonds' departure as, as as manager a few years before. Redknapp, of course, was his assistant and then took over uh, when things started going badly for Bonds, who was, of course, much more of a West Ham legend than, than uh, Harry Redknapp ever was, uh, despite both of them having played for the club. And it was just those two signings of Hartson and Kitson that was early February, I think. Obviously, there was no January transfer window then, so you could keep signing players up until you liked, I think, up until the end of March. Was this and, the same uh, year that Rio Ferdinand came to? Ferdinand had well, come through. Yeah. Lampard was... They were, both te- they were both really, really young at that point. They both started to come into the team. Ferdinand had made, I think, a bit more of an impact um, than Lampard had at that point. And there was another young player who um, kind of gets lost now, kind of gets forgotten, um, a midfielder, Danny Williamson, who was, um, oh, yeah. he, he was, he, he scored a brilliant goal uh, at Bolton away. Must have been the 95-96 season. A brilliant individual goal, ran the length of the pitch and everything. There was a lot of excitement about him, but it never really happened for him uh, at West Ham after that. Um, he, I don't know, I can't remember where he ended up, but he got sold. Everton. And, Everton. Wow. And um, yeah, so so Lampard and, and Ferdinand had. had started to come through but Ferdinand started to really make his mark at the end of that 96-97 season Um, and they also bought Steve Lomas and he brought in a bit of steel into the midfield and they they ended up um, it was still you know touch and go in terms of staying up that season at the end of it but Hartson and Kitson started scoring there are a couple of big home they they, Hartson it must be I don't know if it was their debut or not I think it was then uh, they they on a Monday night, they played Spurs at home on well, Sky. 4-3 was that? 4-3, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's quite possible that Dick scored a well, oh, penalty-winning goal. Again, one of the classic Julian Dick's uh, penalties, you know, <laughs> hammer it down. If you take the goalkeeper's life and everything, then, then so be it. <laughs> um, and uh, But, but Hartson, Hartson certainly scored in that game. Because, of course, he, he, he had... Wenger had come in at Arsenal and had Bergkamp and Wright together, and there was just no place for Hartson at that point. And he only he didn't you know he didn't it wasn't a particularly uh, expensive signing, but um, it turned out to be a you know, fantastic signing for for West Ham and uh, scored loads and loads of goals uh, during that run in. Had a great partnership with Kitson during the run in. Mm. They had another one against uh, sort of similar game against um, Chelsea, similar to the Spurs game, uh, sort of around March on a, another. Week, week, uh, midweek night, and um, three-two, late, late goal, and everything. And Chelsea at that point were, you know, it was, it was Zola, Viali, um, 
Mark Hughes and everything, they were starting to get much better and everything. So they had these big wins and Hartson and Kitson were huge in that. And it was, uh, they stayed up in the end with you know, a fair degree of comfort. It was, um, although they did, they did actually kind of help and make up a little bit for what they did to United in 95, because it was a nil-nil draw against uh, Newcastle that actually kept West Ham up and uh, won United the league with, I think it was their penultimate game which was quite lucky for them because um, their last game of the season was at Old Trafford that, that year. And um, I think United very much would have been going out for revenge. And, and, and if United had actually been needing to win that game to, <laughs> to win the league, uh, obviously that, that would have gone slightly differently, I think, for West Ham. United won that game quite comfortably. When I look, um, when I look back at this, so, that 96-97 yeah. season, did Berkovic come in during that season or the end of that season? Berkovic uh, was at the end of that season. Right. And, and when was Sinclair? He, he was, was, it, was he already there then? Sinclair, Sinclair was uh, the midway through the following season because Sinclair right. had. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's strange, really. I mean, you, you think now when when that's Trevor Sinclair, by the way, I'm talking about. I guess Trevor Sinclair. Wondering. Yeah, yeah. He 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 was already regarded as a not not a top player, but mm. uh, he was a, regarded as a really good player at QPR and. They went down, obviously, in, in 95, 96. And then he spent a year and a half there. That wouldn't happen now. Uh, a player, you know, one of your top players spending so long at a relegated team. Um, but it took, him, it took him 18 months to get out of QPR and, uh, and, and get back into the Premier League. And it, it kind of, it kind of almost been forgotten about by the time he turned up at West Ham in, in January 1998. Um, the, only thing, the only thing I remember is that... The goal he scored against Barnsley or whoever it was, that absurd overhead kick. Off a QPR, yeah, which, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, at which point he was a, um, a champ of, well, first division player yeah. uh, when he did that. And, uh, yeah. But, uh, so Berkovic, um, yeah, he, he, he obviously, he, I don't think anybody knew who he was until he destroyed Manchester United in that 6-3 for Southampton in uh just, you know, the week after they'd lost to Newcastle 5-0. And then suddenly they're getting tormented by this unknown little Israeli bloke in, in midfield. Um, and I, th- he, I think he scored two goals in that game. Two um, very good goals as well. Might be, I don't know if it was his debut or not, but it was certainly very early on in his, in his time How in How long England. was the countdown on this before John Hartson kicked him in the head in training? <laughs> uh, it's another two years before that happens. <laughs> it's, it's almost around the same time of the season. Um, but he turned up at West... He, he left uh, Southampton, turned up at West Ham, and uh, he was the, he basically... He was the heartbeat of the team. He, although it was a little bit like playing with ten men at times, because he did absolutely no defensive work at all. Um, and obviously, Redknapp kind of loved him at that time. He was, he loved these little creative players, and he he toyed with trying to find them. He had a little Portuguese player called Danny, um, who who on his debut scored the winning goal at, uh, away to Spurs in the ninety five ninety six season, and it didn't really happen for him at West Ham. I think he fell out with Redknapp and then they tried Porfirio. That didn't work future. And then Berkovic, I think, was the one who finally uh, really, really filled in that, slotted into that role uh, for, for Redknapp. Um, but he had no interest in tackling or anything like that or, or working hard. I mean, he he wouldn't, uh, Mourinho wouldn't like him, put it that way. Was he, was he not trusted by the other members of the squad because of that, do you think? Is it because the players like you always think, what do other players think of them when they just can't be asked? They're the other, the Meza Ozo problem now, I suppose. Uh, he was very effective. Mm. Um, he, he, he 
his passing range was absolutely incredible. There are some assists which his vision was amazing. There's a, there's an assist against um, Tottenham in, in April, May 99, where West Ham were pushing for UEFA Cup uh, qualification. They were um, this the season they finished fifth. And there's a pass uh, which uh, releases Mark Keller, who's a, who was a French winger for West Ham. Mm, and, um, and it just completely takes... Um, takes out uh, the, the Tottenham defence and it's, it's on a level of you know someone like Xavi or, or Iniesta really that, that that single pass there and there were games when if he was if he was on it then other teams couldn't handle him at all and I know Manchester City fans as well when uh, when he ended up there they loved him especially when he was playing with um, Ali Benabia but I don't think he was the easiest character to to deal with he he left West Ham under um, you know a little bit quite a long time after the um Hartson incident, and uh, but he left under a bit of a cloud. Um, so you're you know, basically saying it's his, own, it's his own fault a giant Welshman booted him in the head. That's basically because <laughs> he's a difficult character to. Well, I don't think there's obviously any. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hartson did, but I think by the time he, by the time he left, um, I think they kind of thought that Joe Cole was going to be able to just come in and, and play that. Uh, role behind the two strikers that's kind of number 10 role but he didn't have the same kind of um and product that Berkovic had do you uh, he, Berkovic one of the most underrated players I think in the last few years do you remember I mean the buzz around Joe Cole I remember when uh this is what 99 when he started coming through yeah. he was I remember I was living in Cardiff at the time and I didn't have Sky because I just you know I didn't and I went to, and I went to I remember going to the pub for a midweek game in the evening because Cole was either playing or he was coming off the bench for the first time because I was desperate to have a look at him because there was just so much noise in the system about how talented he was. I can't remember any player of the past 20 years that, that that's, that's been, that that's been the same, that that kind of buzz and that kind of hype has come through for a teenager. I mean, it, it well, happened well, I mean, with maybe, Rooney, but he scored, Rooney, yeah. but, he, but that yeah. happened because he scored that goal with Cole. It was before anyone had even seen him. He was talked about, it, it, from my memory, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, he was talked about so much in four four two, and Ferguson wanted him and this whole buzz about this, I've just never known it before or since really. Yeah, I remember um, before a game against uh, Chelsea in March 98 and just reading in the programme and I was quite young at the time so I hadn't, you, you're sort of not really conscious of youth players at, at, at your club necessarily and... Um, just reading Redknapp sort of in his program notes, denying that Joe Cole was off to Manchester United and everything. And I was like, who, 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 Joe Cole, who's that? And, um, <laughs> and it must have been, and so that's the end of the 97, 98 season. And um, yeah, they, they finished eighth that season. They missed out on, um, and but this was obviously the season when, when it really started to all come together for them, when Hartson scored 25 goals that, that year. Uh, but um, they, they ended up missing out on UEFA Cup. They finished eighth because Aston Villa played Arsenal on the last day of the season, and Arsenal by that point had clocked off because they'd won the league the week before, and they had the FA Cup the week later. And uh, so they they, uh, they they ended up blowing, uh, finishing I think seventh would have got them into the UEFA Cup that year, and went, and they ended up blowing it because they they messed up a couple of easy games, and then um, and so that that that. Villa, mm. Villa beat Arsenal when they probably wouldn't have done, <laughs> given that Arsenal barely lost a game uh, in that run-in. And then a few months later, uh, Cole was out on the pitch. He, he signed his contract either 
before the game or at half time, another game against Chelsea, uh, who were going for the that was the Chelsea team that were properly going for the title for the first time under Viali. And they brought Joe Cole out onto the pitch at half time. And it was um, Jeremy Nicholas, who was uh, the pitch announcer, you know, guy with the mic and everything, reading out the teams. And he said, tell, tell, your, tell your kids that you were here, tell your grandkids that you were here when Joe Cole signed his. And that was how crazy it was, you know. It and, was, um, yeah, I'd say it's completely unique. Completely unique. And he also the fact he, he looked about. When he did that? He looked about 11 and he had those late 90s curtains, didn't he? At the time, yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, another kind of young player as well that West Ham signed at that time. If I remember, do you remember the, in the nineties? It seemed to be a long list of young goalkeepers who were going to be the best in the world. And West they Ham signed been, Stephen, uh, Bywater. Stephen Bywater. He was another one of those ones who was going to get hundred England caps, wasn't he? Do you remember Steve Simmonson at Tranmere? He went to Everton. He was another one. He was basically <laughs> signed at seventeen and by twenty-one was meant to be number one in England and stuff. It was a particularly strange period of time for all these young. Goalkeepers, I mean, but it never really happened for Bywater at all, did it? Well, speaking of uh, Stephen Bywater, uh, he made his debut in a game against Bradford where Shaka Hislop, who had been a fantastic goalkeeper for West Ham, having signed in, um, he was another, he, speaking of Harry Redknapp's uh, hits and misses, he he's definitely goes down as a hit, signed on a free transfer from Newcastle mm. in, in, in 1998. And he, he for a couple of seasons, he was really, really good. Uh, but then he, his leg was broken by Dean Saunders in a game against Bradford in February 2000. After about five minutes, Saunders was closing down a, a back pass and just caught him. So he had to go off. And Bywater, who was a kid, came on for his debut. And he was just a massive bag of nerves. And the first two goals weren't his fault. You know, he kind of stayed on his line for a corner instead of coming for it. And when he probably could have maybe come for it and... Bradford players scored and then Bradford scored a penalty just before half time. It was two all at half time. And then at the start of the uh, second half, Jamie Lawrence, who at that, I don't know if you remember him, the little Bradford winger yeah. who uh, had dyed his hair red, really bright red for this game. And he scored two really soft goals, which were Bywater's fault. And he just looked like he was in tears. And um, you know, it's just like this kid whose debut has just gone horribly, horribly wrong. And it, Around that time, it was like West Ham kids could do nothing wrong at all. And he was you know, the one who was finally blowing his big chance and everything. Um, and you really, really felt for him. And obviously, this was a, this is the same game in which uh, De Canio had... And this is an absolute disgrace, I mean, by the way. Not, not, partly his behaviour in saying I want to go off, but also the, the, if you look at the, the fouls on him in the area and the penalties that he doesn't get... Uh, they're all so blatant, um, and he, there were there were two, three, maybe four very, very <laughs> obvious penalties that weren't given to him. And Tacano, cruel. They're they're four two down at home to Bradford, who were a promoted side, and um, Tacano is like crawls to the side of the pitch and everything, saying, "I'm coming off, I'm coming off." At the same time, uh, Redknapp saying, "Get up, you know, you're, a, <laughs> you're pretty much the only player in the side at this point," and he, he, the whole team was revolved revolved around him. Um, and uh, Bradford are going up the other end. Dean Saunders is going through and hitting the post, almost making it 5-2. De Canio eventually gets up and starts playing again like a madman. Uh, and West Ham win a penalty a few minutes later, finally, not for a foul on De Canio, at which point he starts to have... Uh, Lampard says he's going to take the penalty. <laughs> this is the famous 
to Kanye snatching the ball off him and everything. And we're, mm. we're all thinking, God, he's, you know, he's this, you know, this is like Benteke and um, Milijevic a couple of weeks ago in the Palace game. Like, <laughs> you better score this. And obviously, the Palace player didn't. The Kanye did. He'd missed a really important penalty a couple of weeks before, which is why he was so intent on taking it. So he scores. Then Joe Cole scores his first ever league goal to equalise. So, you know, it's four all. And uh, then the Canio sets up Lampard to score a very, very nice winner. Um, so in a roundabout way to talk about Stephen Bywater, he was then kind of, he was then kind of bombed out after that and um, didn't play again. And then... <laughs> Funny how football works. He then got a chance because his lot had broken his leg. They didn't really have a first choice goalkeeper after that. He got another chance against Arsenal at the end of the season away, and he played brilliantly uh, at Highbury, where West Ham usually gets stuffed. And he only got beaten by a last minute deflected winner from miles out from Petit. Um, but it just he he it, he. I don't think he played again in the in the Premier League for West Ham because uh, his lot came back and. David James got signed. And then when James got sold after relegation, he came into the team in the championship. But he just wasn't very good at that point. Uh, he was, was stuck on his line and everything and ended up at Derby and ended up, I don't know if you remember him swearing live on, on TV no. um, in a very roundabout way after Derby won the playoff final in uh, 2007 or 2008 or something. Um, yeah, I'm fair. He, he, he in some way used the c word, and I think it's, right. it's somewhere there. Uh, I think it, I think it was then, but it, it, yeah, that's that's his main claim to fame at this point, Stephen Bywater. I think, I, think he, I think he's I think he's at Burton Albion now. I was going to talk about Decanio really. So obviously he'd push Paul Alcock over in 1998, <laughs> which is to this day that's still a massive dive by Alcock. Can I no, just, yeah, just you, before, before you go on to that, yeah, go on. It's worth looking at that because the best bit about it is before he pushes Alcock, when he kind of pushes his face towards Win- Winterburn comes over to have a go at him, and Canio sort of half goes for Winterburn, and Winterburn's reaction, he really like instinctively recoils. He's just hilarious. It's worth <laughs> having a look. And then obviously he pushes Alcock over, but anyway. So he, he was at Sheffield Wednesday, doing very well, previously been at Celtic, pushes Paul Alcock over, gets a, what, 10, 11 week ban, was it or something? Never played for Wednesday again, signed for West Ham. Yeah. In January yeah. '99, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I suppose is yeah. that when you because you, we've already talked about the signings that came in up to that point, and you know, and, and uh, Lampard, Hartson, etc. Um, but it was '99. Then you get Ian Wright came in. Then didn't he? Decanio came in. Mark Vivian Foe came in. Is that right? Yeah. So Ian Wright came in at the uh, start of the '98-'99 yeah. season when they, they, they. So Decanio came midway through that season, and um, they, on their day they were absolutely fantastic. And um, when they weren't on their day, they could be absolutely dreadful as well. <laughs> uh, there's a, the, the, probably the best example of this is a game against um, Wimbledon at home in September 1998, where they were three 0 up after. 15 minutes and looking like they were going to beat them, you know, five, six, seven nil. And uh, then Wimbledon scored just before half time and West Ham started uh, retreating and retreating and Wimbledon, you know, they still had their, they, they were just, it was, this is the season before obviously Egil Olsen turns up and everything. So they still had all these huge strikers and um, they just started punting the ball into the box and uh, ended up winning four, three. And, um, so West Ham throwing away a 3-0 lead at home to 
Wimbledon. Three days later, Liverpool turn up at Upton Park as the league leaders, Michael Owen and everything, had just scored the Argentina goal uh, from the World Cup. And then he, a week before that, he'd scored that hat-trick against, um, against Newcastle. West Ham beat them at home. Uh, they, and that was kind of just summing them up. You know, they, capable, they were capable of letting a 3-0 lead at home to Wimbledon uh, out of their hands and then three days later they'll beat the team at the top of the league and um, that, that, se- that season they they were capable of winning a game 5-1 or they uh, I think they conceded uh, I think they conceded four goals or more on seven occasions that season um, <laughs> that's amazing they, 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 I mean to put it into they, they lost 4-0 at home to Sheffield Wednesday and 4-0 at home to Arsenal uh, in a, during a really bad period they had uh, uh, in, in, uh, in January. They closed the season out with a 5-1 defeat at home to Leeds. They ended that game with eight men. Uh, <laughs> they, went, they then went to Everton a week later. And although they, it was different then, wasn't it? Because you didn't get your suspensions straight away. Uh, they kind of carried over. Uh, well, you know, it's two or three weeks later when you get your suspension. Sometimes, but they went to Everton, who uh, were in their one of their relegation battles. They lost six <laughs> nil, Everton. But they still and What's amazing yeah, about that is they finished. And then a week later, they it was the last game of the season, and they beat Middlesbrough four nil at home to finish fifth. <laughs> they finished fifth with goal difference of minus seven. Well, that's a Norwich they, job, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think they conceded more goals than Blackburn, who got relegated that season. Um, but there was a point in a. There was a point in. That's right. Yeah, West Ham conceded fifty-three goals. Blackburn were relegated with fifty-two goals. Yeah, and this was partly. Um, this was partly, I think, a little bit down to Berkovic. Uh, for, <laughs> they played this. They played this five-three-two system, um, which, on, at home, they could rip teams apart with it with Berkovic behind two strikers and Lampard as well bombing forward and scoring goals as well from from midfield and uh, kind of Steve Lomas kind of mopping things up in, uh, just in front of it and everything but they also their, their wing backs were Trevor Sinclair and usually Mark Keller so it's really really attacking side um, and uh, they, they, they went second after beating Spurs at the end of November but it wasn't it wasn't really sustainable. A week later, they they lost four nil at home, four nil away to Leeds. So there were times when they when they just defensively they would just capitulate. And um, there, there were there were there were a couple of occasions where Redknapp would actually kind of change it up and he would drop Berkovic. They went to um, Chelsea in mid March and I don't think Berkovic played in that game. I think he was on the bench and Decanio who had come in. De Canio had a bit of a habit of, of dodging difficult away games. Uh, <laughs> a, a mystery muscle injury would, would cr- usually crop up. It, um, it was kind of, especially away from uh, when they would go up north, uh, it, was, it was nicknamed Northern Flu that De Canio would, <laughs> would suddenly develop and, and he, wouldn't, he wouldn't turn up and everything. But he wasn't playing in that game. And uh, so they played, four, they played a 4-5-1 away to Chelsea and Redknapp actually you know, being a like a responsible manager and they won one nil. And that was against the Chelsea team who at that point um were you could say they were on a par with United who were about to win the win the treble, but that was one of the games that kind of stopped Chelsea from winning the league that year. Um so yeah, they were, it was a very anarchic team, but sort of with strange 
a habit sometime of defending and being very organised and being able to do the things that weren't usually associated when you with finish, them. When, when the team finished fifth that year, and obviously they went into the Intertoto Cup and had to like play the first round of it on like the 5th of June or something ridiculous like <laughs> that, wasn't it? It was unbelievable. Yeah. But um, was there a feeling as fans at that time that this is going to get better? Because Berkovic went, didn't he, at the end of that year? And then Stimach came in, Wanchapi came in. And weirdly, mm. he re- did, didn't you reunite the Nottingham Forest fullbacks? Stuart Pearce and Gary Charles came in. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because uh, Stuart Pearce was at um, uh, he was at Newcastle, wasn't he? And they yeah, bought he him a on a free, free transfer. And, and Gary Charles yeah. came back from Portugal. Where he Gary Charles came back. Uh, that was a not a very successful signing. I think Stuart Pearce is kind of mixed. He, he broke his leg twice um, very early on. One of the ones where he tried to, I can't remember which one it was. I think it was the first one when he tried to run it off. He might have tried <laughs> to run off both of them, actually. Um, <laughs> Stimatch was a cracking signing, though. Stimatch, um, Stimatch was okay in his first year, and then he got a bit, he went a bit, uh, he got a bit dirty after that. Right. I think he was slowing down. <laughs> And uh, he, he started to concede a quite, you know, three kicks in dangerous areas. Then he got sent off. He got sent off once for uh, clobbering Robbie Savage around the head. So you could kind of forgive him for that one. Um, but uh, there, there were, there, yeah, they, they 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 sold they sold Berkovic to Celtic uh, for for six million. It was a lot of money, and, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think they were I think they were trying to get Mark Viduka in return, or they were trying to get him around the same time, but he didn't. He's, I think he stayed there. I think that's right. And um, they signed one shot that that summer. But one shot was they. The thing about the thing about it was they finished fifth, and they were obviously a team with huge potential. They had these. Well, for a start, they had Lampard and and Ferdinand, who were already coming through. I don't think Lampard got in, had got into the had had been in the England squad up to that point. Ferdinand had obviously already been in the England squad, gone to the World Cup to kind of get used to what it's like to be on international duty without playing. The potential was obviously there, but their only their only cash signing, I think, after finishing fifth and, and qualifying for the Intertoto Cup, which, by the way, should have been enough for them to qualify for um, the <laughs> UEFA Cup outright, but um, they, they, they kind of got screwed over a, a little bit by by either UEFA or the FA that, that season where fifth wasn't enough. Um, and... Uh, that the, the, all they did was buy one shot for three and a half million from Derby, and there was no well, the problem really throughout the years for West Ham, especially in that era, was always after um, doing something good, they would they just wouldn't capitalise on it, and they, they having finished fifth, they ended up finishing ninth the year later, the, the following season, and it was I think that losing Berkovic. Um, I mean, my dad always thought that after the best football they ever played was 98-99, and that after losing Berkovic, it wasn't quite the same. And I kind of, I do, I do, I kind of sympathise with that view as well. I think that they it became too focused on De Canio. Um as brilliant as he was. He was a one-man team. They they ended up there's those there are those teams sometimes where one player ends up becoming so big that the others kind of almost shrink, um, and they they want him to do everything. And De Canio was such a demanding and 
uh, strong character that you know he would like be he would be jogging back into the right back position and he'd be taking the throws and <laughs> he was terrible at te- he was his corners were terrible they re- <laughs> they would regularly just be chipped into the uh, into the six yard box for the keeper just to catch and everything but he would take all the corners and um, and there were times when he could win a game on his own there's a game against um, Arsenal in '99 where it's one of the great Barry Davis commentaries where he <laughs> uh, lobs. Um, Martin, not not Barry Davis doesn't love Martin Keown. Uh, <laughs> uh, Although he could if he wanted but... to, I'm sure he could. Barry could do that if he wanted to. <laughs> I'm sure he could. But they they have been played they have been played off the park by Arsenal and Arsenal. <laughs> the classic Arsenal Wenger game of of creating all the chances and not taking any, even in those days. And uh, they got done by De Canio. Um And the first the first goal as well. He 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 picks the ball up on the halfway line. And he just runs through the Arsenal team. And it's it's not one of the great dribbles. It's just the ball kept bouncing off an Arsenal player, falling to the canyon, and it just kept going on and on and on. It's through sheer force of will, basically. <laughs> yeah, and it runs, it runs through to Trevor Sinclair, who chips it back into the area, and um, and canyon ends up scoring. And continues to get battered by Arsenal. And, he, and then he, 20 minutes to go, he lobs Keown and, and, and then lobs, um, lobs, lobs Seaman and Davis goes, Barry Davis on the match of the day commentary goes mad and everything. So he could do those things, but I don't think they were as complete a team as they were when, um, when they had Berkovic in the side. Uh, and it was a shame because Berkovic and De Canio only played together for half a season. Oh, God, mm. yeah. What year was it that he, he famously turned down the open goal, De Canio? That was uh, 2000. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the funny thing about that one, I don't think he was going to score. He was on the edge of the area and crowded yeah. by around three, two or three defenders and, and catches it. And the ball's head height at this point is on the edge of the area. Uh, so he would have had to, you know, take the ball down and, and, and tap it in. But it was, yeah, it was a great piece of uh, sportsmanship, obviously. Um, but And a great piece of theatre as well, which he was never one to turn down, was he? Well, I think that I think that helped win back uh, his reputation because obviously mm. he'd had the incident with Paul Alcock. Do you remember um, the the Ian Wright Neil Ruddock celebration? <laughs> yeah. Yes, was that against Southampton? Yeah, well, that which obviously was uh, they had. Yeah. This was two or three months before De Canio signed for West Ham, so there was no inkling that he was going to be turning up there and everything. But they went and ate the uh, the. They, they Wright scored a goal against Southampton, and Neil Ruddock, being the comedian that he is, they um, conjured this uh, this imitation of the the Canyon Alcock uh, incident, which I think because it was a Monday night, it must have taken place on the weekend before that and everything. And then a couple of week, a couple of months later, the Canyon's their um, their their teammate. There were a lot of um, kind of YouTubeable moments and kind of memorable event for that team weren't they? i'm thinking like boogers uh parts and kicking thing in the head oh that's on a yimmy story when he was playing God, yeah. eligible the canio's famous goal against wimbledon that other goal which was the one against kind of, wimbledon the flying scissor kick thing yeah but there's another yeah. the, the, goal the matrix one yeah forgotten about from a corner which i think ends up with sinclair scoring a flying volley but it doesn't go off the ground which is never spoken about as a great Premier League goal but it's right up there I just I hadn't really thought of this before but they seem like like you know like um, Patrick Vieira was sent off for spitting at Neil Ruddock Banfield. that was in the um, the Canio game yeah kind of loads of, they were quite a kind of sometimes inadvertently quite a rock and roll team in a way yeah I mean the um, the one you mentioned there that, that really stands out is the uh, Omoyini incident um, I don't know how, how if people are necessarily familiar with this um, on, a, on a wider scale, but 
I think you, my dad, my dad always said that you could trace the relegation almost, or or at least he he traced up Rio Ferdinand leaving to to this moment where <laughs> they were they they played um, Aston Villa in a League Cup quarter final in um, in December, and they they were doing pretty well in the league. Uh, they you know they, they finished fifth the year before and everything, so no question of any kind of relegation battle. They were up in the top half, kind of pushing for uh, the UEFA Cup qualification again. They get Aston Villa at home, and they, Aston Villa were kind of on a par with them. The games were all between West Ham and Aston Villa around that time. They were pretty, they were pretty tight. They often ended in one-all draws, and um, so there wasn't really a clear favourite for for this one. But it was kind of thought that the team that wins this this tie is going to go on to win the competition. Um, as it happened, this didn't turn out. Leicester ended up. Mm winning it again under Martin O'Neill. But um, they Villa took a very early lead uh, through um, Ian Taylor, who always scored against West Ham. <laughs> and um, then they equalised with 20 minutes to go. Lampard scored. Then right at the end, uh, I think, yeah, Dion Dublin. Dion Dublin scores in the, like, the 91st minute uh, to make it 2-1 to Villa. And I remember just... Just you know, everybody just turning for the exits. We had turned for the exits. We were going down. West Ham goes straight up the other end from the uh, from the kickoff, and Paul Kitson pretty much dives to. It's a pathetic <laughs> dive, and but the ref buys it. Um, there's absolutely nothing in it, and gives the penalty. Decano steps up, and so we're almost in the exit, looking at it, at, you know, at the up the other end, and uh, he sent, he just basically rolls the ball into one corner, and David James. <laughs> dives the other way to all goes to extra time goes to penalties and um gareth southgate believe it or not who's obviously playing for villa at the time misses the uh decisive penalty um saved and uh, uh by shaka hislop and obviously you know it's gareth southgate he had it was this is three years after his penalty miss for England at Euro 96 and everything and he's he's the one who was stepping up to um, I, I can't remember if it was in sudden if he was taking Villa's sudden death penalty or if he was, was taking a sixth that penalty I think it yeah. was sixth again yeah but I think like that, was, that. that was certainly the first penalty he'd taken since yeah and so he, he's walking up to the Bobby Moore so it was up at the Bobby Moore end not in, not at the other end where the Villa fans would have been and obviously you just knew what was going to happen he's just getting all kinds of abuse and, and jeers and everything. It was almost, I don't think I've ever seen a player, the opposition fans cheering as he's walking up to take a penalty. <laughs> uh, it just, it and it actually wasn't that bad a penalty. It's not like it was where he just rolled it down the middle against uh, against Germany. He, he sort of side-footed it quite high, but it was you know one of those nice heights for the keeper and his lot went the right way, saved it. So West Ham are in the semi-finals of the League Cup. They're... Um, Drawn, they're supposed to be drawn against Leicester, and obviously the League Cup's two legs. And if you look at the two, uh, the two head-to-heads, the the lead games between those sides um, that season, West Ham won. They beat them two-one at um, Upton Park at the start of the season, and then they won really well away at Leicester. De Canio scored a great goal. They beat them three-one. So you're kind of thinking they probably would have won this game. What they had done as well at the same time, with seven minutes to go uh, in extra time against Aston Villa, was put on Manny Omiyinni, who um, was a youth player at West Ham and hadn't really done anything after scoring a couple of goals against uh, Crystal Palace the 
two two seasons before this, and he basically wasn't really part of the squad at all. He'd been out on loan um, at various clubs, one of which was Gillingham, and he hadn't bothered telling anybody that he had already played in the competition. <laughs> so he comes on with seven minutes to go in extra time and doesn't touch the ball. He doesn't take a penalty. Um, but then it suddenly gets noticed on maybe the Friday uh, the Friday after the game that Manny Omini had played this game and was actually cup-tied. And no one at West Ham knew that he played the game uh, previously for, for Gillingham. And uh, no one's bothered to check. And Graham Mackerel, who... Um, if I'm right, was uh, at Sheffield Wednesday uh, in '89 when um, for for Hillsborough. Um, not to say they had any role in this or anything, but um, <laughs> just by by coincidence, he was he was he was there uh, at that time, uh, I think anyway. And um, it, he was West Ham's like general secretary or something. He ends up falling on his sword. You know, you're kind of thinking uh, Red, Redknapp as the manager probably should have known this as well that one of his players had played I'm, already i'm amazed that, that harry redknapp redknapp is not very good at administration <laughs> nothing about his life since then has, has given that away has it or even just knowing what one of his players was up to on loan and i always just you sort of think like you this moment where someone from the crowd could have run down saying no don't put him on because he hadn't played no one would have checked it or anything anyway they go to um the, the game has to be there's everyone saying chuck them out of the cup and everything and uh, that's what Villa wanted instead it gets replayed at Upton Park and three days after the, the the sorry the day after this news emerged they have Manchester United at home and uh, sorry to keep talking about West Ham Manchester United games but this <laughs> is um obviously the mood at Upton Park was you know it's like a it was like a wake because <laughs> oh my god we we were supposed to be in the semi-finals of the league cup and instead are we going to get thrown out and here's Manchester United turning up the European champions and the champions of England. And United are 3-0 up after 20 minutes. Uh, Ryan Giggs and Dwight York, I think, were tearing them apart. And uh, and then De Canio decided that he wanted to play as well. Uh, scores just before half-time. Then he goes through and rounds the keeper. And this is another great Barry Davis moment. Um, <laughs> because he he was delighted that Davis had, uh, that De Canio had gone round, um, I think it was Raymond van der Howe in goal for United that day. So like, you just don't see players doing that anymore. And um, he uh, and De Canio scores 3-2 with half an hour left. De Canio goes through about a minute later. And this time, instead of just going round him again, or, or he tries a stupid chip and uh, Van der Howe saves it. United goes straight up the other end, as they did. And they score 4-2. Um, and <laughs> kind of sum that West Ham team up that year. Because uh, they then they... The replay against uh, Aston Villa was at Upton Park about a month later. They uh, went 1-0 up through Lampard and then Villa scored right near the end, goes to extra time. Villa score again. Uh, then West Ham win a penalty. Uh, De Canio steps up to take it again. This time David James guesses it right, right, the right way, saves it. And Villa score again, 3-1. They go through to the, um, to the, uh, to the semi-finals of the League Cup. Don't even win it, having gone to all that trouble. Don't even get to the final. I think they lost to. I think they lost to Leicester, and um, and they, uh, and, you know, you're kind of looking at going. West Ham probably would have won this competition. They probably would have beaten first division Tranmere in the final of the League Cup. They would have got into Europe. Instead, when Leeds came calling the season later, there was nothing really for 
then to point to for, for Rio Ferdinand in, in November of that season. They couldn't say we're in Europe or we're, we're, we're spending money on players. Instead, they had, you know, this team was kind of starting to fall apart a bit and uh, off, off, off Rio went uh, for 18 million. Um, and of course, West Ham could have spent that money in a different way. Uh, they could have spent all of it as well. But uh, that's another story. But just those little moments where they don't, they didn't capitalise on, on what they were doing. The, the talent that they had um, is probably what's frustrating when you look back at it. And I think it's something that still happens what, to this um, day, even though it's different, a different administration running what the club. What happened in the FA Cup run in 2001? Because they had that great win at United when Barthez they tried to... First. Yeah, but they, beat, they had a really good win away at Sunderland as well, didn't they? I remember thinking at the time like that whole name on the cup shit, but it kind of seemed to apply. And then you lost at home to Spurs. But that wasn't a great Spurs team, was it? Uh, in that game no that, that game uh, but they they after that was up that was three or four months after they sold Rio and um, they'd obviously replaced him with absolute nonsense and um, <laughs> but they but they actually they actually started to play quite well uh, after they'd sold him um, they were playing well before they before they'd sold him um, his the week before he the week before he left he um, I think his last game was against Leeds and he had Baduka in his pocket and they they won at Leeds and um which they never really did. And uh and they were playing pretty well. They um and then it's I think they got an injury and Trevor Sinclair, who was a really, really important player for them, gave them a lot of balance on and width and everything. And he had a really good understanding with the Canyo. They they could really take the piss out of defenders when they were in the mood together. Mm-hmm. And um he got injured quite badly in January, ruled oh, okay. him out for the rest of the season. Uh, and then, so that this was just before they went to United and won that game. They then went to um, Sunderland a, a month later, and and they won that as well. Sunderland, where they never really won either. But by the time they got to the Spurs game, they really run out of form. Losing Sinclair was such a big blow for them, and those signings as well. The uh, the, the defensive signings like Christian Daly, Rigobert Song, Raggy Somar, who had come in to replace. Um, Rio Ferdinand, you know, instead of spending it on the money on one top player, say, Ugo Ekiog, who ended up at Middlesbrough instead, having decided he wanted to leave Aston Villa, they spent, they went cheap and bought it on players who simply weren't good enough. Um, you know, quant- cheap quantity over one quality signing. They, you know, they tried, they kind of thought about going for Southgate as well. He ends up at Middlesbrough a few few months later, I think, after that. Um and so by the time they got to Spurs, uh, they 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 were playing really badly, and um, Spurs weren't a great side. This was George Graham got sacked, I think, um, a few a few weeks later after that, and replaced by Hoddle. Mm. But uh, they Rebrov uh, Rebrov Rebrov supposed to be they, Spurs got a throw on the left, and you know they were really direct and physical side, which um, you know not anything like they are now. And the team was a bit of a joke, to be honest, the Spurs team that year. And uh, they just lobbed the ball in. And was that the Chris Armstrong some... period? Uh, Arms... I think Armstrong must have left by that point. Right. Rebrov was up front. They yeah. signed Rebrov thinking that he was Shevchenko. And obviously he'd been great, <laughs> a great signing. So he'd been a great player with Shevchenko for Dinamo Kiev. But he turned up at Spurs and it's a bit wishy-washy, wasn't he? Mm. And... Um, and somehow the ball from a throw gets lands on his foot in the uh, in the area and jo- and you know Joe Cole was supposed to be marking him so why is why why is the teenage creative attacking magicians marking Tottenham's main striker uh, Rebrov scores and 
Um, and then they got back on, they, they equalised before half-time, Stuart Pearce free kick, and then they conceded two really soft goals again, one from a, just a long punt upfield and the other from a corner where Joe Cole was standing on the post and, um, and for whatever reason, footballers do this sometimes, he moves away from the post as the header's coming oh, in. Oh, God, yeah, I remember and, that. Uh, Gary, yeah. Gary Gofferty and Redknapp pretty much hung him out to dry after that. It's they ended up losing 3-2. Um, they ended up losing 3-2. They missed loads and loads of chances. Uh, Neil Sullivan had a great, uh, you know, inspired game. But I don't think they... I think if they'd won that game, as gutting as it was, like it was, you know, re- really, really bad. And the, wor- the worst thing about it was that um, and Jeremy Nicholas, who um, has... He once contacted me on, on Twitter about this to have, you know, a, bit of a light-hearted banter um, about... You know, <laughs> that sounds about dreadful. <laughs> um, he, 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 as we're walking out, having lost to Tottenham uh, in the FA Cup, being knocked out at home in the FA Cup quarterfinal to Tottenham, he goes, "Good luck to Tottenham in the next round." At which point, like, suddenly there's this outpouring, like, <laughs> yeah. East End rage, up and Park. Good luck to Tottenham. But they would have played Arsenal yeah, the in the. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. They would so... have played Arsenal in the uh, in the semi final, and then they would have played Liverpool. Yeah, so I doubt they would have won the cup that How... year. How do you look back on that team? They, did they fulfil their potential? Could they have done more? Is it the most exciting West Ham team you've seen? Um, I think the the ninety eight ninety nine is the best West Ham team I think I've seen. I think it was, I think it was actually superior to Bilic's first season. Um, Can I just stress quickly for uh, for listeners that you're too young to have seen eighty five eighty six? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't born when 85, 86, that, that, I mean, that 85, 86, uh, you know, the boys of 86 and everything um, would, would go down as the greatest West Ham team. And obviously they could have won the title. There's not been a West Ham team since then who's, or ever or before that who were re- remotely close to doing that. And um, I think, well, the, the, the Payet Billich team in two seasons ago, they, they, they finished seventh. The 98-99 side, they finished fifth uh, in you know, there were some proper teams in there. They finished, you know, they they finished above Liverpool that year yeah. uh, in 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 98-99, and, um, and they were capable of beating. You know, teams knew they 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 could come to Upton Park, the top sides, and they could be beaten. Yeah. Uh, so I think that would be they that would probably go down in in 95. Sorry, 98-99. I think you could say that team uh, was fulfilling its potential. I think after that, um, they 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 just. They let the, the they let themselves down by by not signing players and not not. And that not was that was one of Redknapp's biggest problems when he went, wasn't it? He was saying that he was not investing any money. Well, that's the story that he fell out with the owners over investment, wasn't it? And then, well, yeah, the the the, the story went that was that he wanted to sign Laurent Robert, I think, at the end of that two thousand and one right. season because his 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 final season had really petered out into nothing. Mm. You know the. His final season was the 2001 uh, FA FA Cup run, which and after Lam- that that's the year Lampard went as well, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah, Rio went in a Rio went in November 2000 for 18 million, obviously a world record, probably for a defender at that point, and then he broke it again when he left for Manchester United. Um, and they they they, they the, the signings I've already mentioned Daly, Somar, and um, so. Uh, Song Rigobert Song, who actually started quite well before deciding to dribble across his own area in the first minute at Old Trafford and giving the ball straight to Oh yeah, Solskjaer, who um, is actually quite a good finisher. <laughs> um, 
he uh, he just kind of went after that. But they also signed Titi Kamara from uh, from Liverpool, mm. and I think Kamara had had a fairly decent start at Liverpool. But by the time he turned up at West Ham, uh, you know, it kind of gone at that point. He never scored for West Ham, barely played, was on massive wages, um, and he was always. He was. He never looked fit and everything. They also bought, bought a little Bulgarian striker for uh, called uh, Svetoslav Todorov, who ended up yeah. doing quite well for Redknapp at, um, at Portsmouth. Yeah, Portsmouth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, did, he did okay, but they but there was no big signing after Ferdinand's. You know, you sold your best player uh, for eighteen million pounds. You know, the your your, your biggest star. Your, he was the he was the best one out of those young players. Out of Cole Carrick, Lampard. Ferdinand, and then at Defoe and at a later point, Glenn Johnson. I think you could comfortably say that Rio Ferdinand was the best of those players. And, um, give, you know, give or take him or Frank Lampard. But I think I, w- I would say that Rio was one of the best players in the world in his position, uh, probably the best defender in the world at, at various points. And uh, they didn't do anything to replace him. And they replaced him with players who simply weren't good enough. And I think they tried to sign, they tried to sign Robbie Keane, that around that time, he was more interested. He ended up going to Leeds on loan, who were in the Champions League. So, really, they 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 just they just didn't do anything to to re-energize that side after that, and they ended up buying a lot of older players. And and uh, Redknapp still was scrapping around for bargains and everything. So then Redknapp went. Glenn Rowe yeah, took we'll over. Yeah, with the board. Yeah, was was I mean very quick because we probably need to wrap this up now. But in terms of was there a sense of inevitability when Rhoda came in that this doesn't cause doesn't look like it's going to go well from here on in? He he, he did strangely well in his uh, in his first season. Uh, they finished they actually finished seventh um, in a kind of Belichian fa- uh, fashion. Um, they won three games away from home and um, they weren't very good to be honest. And Canute, uh, who was someone we haven't mentioned, who was a mm. good player, um, would go down as a red nap hit. Uh, he, he got from Leon. Say the French striker, in case anybody doesn't remember. He, well, yeah, French striker who did end up playing for Mali in the end. Oh, um, right, okay. but, when, but when he but when he turned up, he was the French striker at West Ham, <laughs> and um, he actually his debut was the Decanio scissors volley game, uh, when, when and he scored in that game, having absolutely ripped them apart. But um, yeah, he, he, he rode after that. They they carried on conceding goals throughout that season. They finished seventh, and then after that, it was just the following season. Having not won any away games in in his first year, they stopped winning at home as well. It took them till the middle of January, and the team didn't respect him. De Canio didn't respect him. Uh, De Canio made it as difficult as possible. There was a point in his first season where De Canio got substituted in a game against Fulham, and he kicked up a massive fuss. Um, and you could kind of tell that some, you know, that the, the, he just didn't respect the manager, supposed to be the captain. And he did something else similar in a game against West Brom, which uh, in the relegation season, West Brom obviously it was a classic six-pointer in at the end of February. And De Canio again, he got taken off. He wasn't playing very well, and uh, just massively disrespected Roder on the touchline. Uh, and Rhoda basically dropped him from the team, banished him from the squad for disciplinary reasons. And then uh, Rhoda, who was not remotely liked by the West Ham fans, obviously they went to Bolton away. Um, Allardyce's Bolton, they lost that game. And then 
this is around Easter. Two days later, they beat Middlesbrough at home to give themselves a bit of hope of staying up. After that game, Roder, of course, gets the, uh, the, the I think, the blood clot or the, or the tumour. I think it's the tumour um, in, in, his, in his brain and everything. And uh, obviously cannot manage West Ham after that. And Trevor Brooking takes over, brings back to Canio. Uh, and brings him off the bench in the penultimate game against um, against Chelsea at home. De Canio comes on again, doesn't really do anything, uh, and um, and and then with ten minutes to go, scores the winner uh, against Chelsea. At the end of which that game, they are out of the bottom three until Southampton fail to beat do them a favour by beating Bolton <laughs> in the five thirty game. At which point their fate is kind of sealed by the time they go to Birmingham and Steve Bruce decides he really wants to <laughs> send them down. So, and then De Canio scored the he equalises in the last minute in that game against Birmingham. So his final act was to do that, but it wasn't enough. And uh, yeah, so it, it ends on a bit of a bad that, note for the that, game. And, and that draws the curtain on the uh, the De Canio period and that period of of West Ham. It's true, like you said, Rob, isn't it? It's There's lots of stories in there that you maybe don't quite remember. It's only when you look you back know, you realise there's, there's a lot of theatre about that period well, at West Ham. Well, we've been talking about this. I've been thinking, Jacob, you should write a book on this. There are so <laughs> many great little stories, never mind the bigger picture. Um, there are just so many brilliant little details. Like, even things like the um, the Wright Ruddock celebration, I love that. Um, plenty of violence, lots of great young players. I haven't even spoken yeah. about I haven't even spoken about the nine nil youth cup final win. Yeah, God, yeah, they just and we they don't, destroyed. We don't have the... time to talk about it now. I'm afraid. <laughs> just, yeah. all, I'll, all I'll say is that they destroyed um, they destroyed Coventry over over two legs, and Joe Cole and Michael Carrick were in that side in the FA Youth Cup final, uh, and they won six. They won the second leg six nil at uh, Upton Park. Um, but you know, it's one of those funny things where a lot of the players from that team never ever made it in that youth team. Only, only Cole and Carrick did. Mm. A lot of them just disappeared. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. That was uh, West Ham. Any memories that you have, let us know at Ness and Dorma Pod. Any memories of Cyril Regis, let us know as well. Although you've probably done that already. We're going to finish off with our quick look at a legend. And this week it's uh, one certain divine ponytail, Mr. Roberto Baggio. Uh, Rob, this is one that you suggested. What's, what's, what's the, well, you know, there's probably lots of obvious things, but what primarily made you think about Baggio this week? <laughs> well, well, not this week, but well, um, yeah, any time yeah, as well. Yeah. I just, I think the thing I love about Badger the most is that, like, football is so manic these days, and even twenty years ago it was, and just he just did everything in his own time. It was such a kind of, he kind of just floated around. There was such a kind of careful precision. Um, never seemed to properly sprint, and just I, I, and yet moved funny, incredibly quickly. Yeah, just so graceful. Scored so many lovely goals. I love. Um, there's a nice detail about. Um, at USA 94, I think all of his goals, all five goals hit the side netting, like such precision. Um, and just there's so much to like about I really like the dignity of his celebration when he scored his penalty against Chile in 98, the kind of catharsis after 94, missing the final. Don't get me wrong, I love Stuart Pierce's celebration as well against when well, he scored in 96, but I just love the way Badjo just kind of runs back to the centre circle, real kind of quiet dignity. I also find it really interesting that so many great managers, and we're talking about great managers, people like Capello, Lippi, and so on basically got rid of him whenever they could. Um, and yet he's absolutely adored by so many people who supported various clubs, whether it's Juventus, even Brescia, who obviously had a great um, uh, period with towards the end. And more than anything, just look at some of his goals. Yeah, there are, him, two, yeah. there are never... two that I would mention. One is um, a goal against Juventus when um, a young Pirlo 
waft a pass over the top. And it, not only does he kill like a dropping ball played over about 50 yards, in the same motion, he takes it round Van der Sar. But, but he does it just well enough to kind of tease Van der Sar to think he can get there, and he can't, and he scores. And there's another one, which is a 1-2 he scored for Juventus at Inter. I think he played it with Kazaragi. And it's just, and everything he did was so smooth, you know. I don't, I can't think of a smoother footballer. Um, yeah, and it just, I just think he's great, really. He's absolutely amazing. I, when you watch the videos back of him, one thing you notice most about him, he never hit a ball harder than there was than, than was necessary. Yeah, it's a good point. You know what I mean, he never seen every every finish, every pass, every nudge of the ball ahead of himself was almost like like dead weight in snooker. You know, this is yeah. this is as far as it needs to go to get the job done. I've also, on a kind of you know, more idiosyncratic way, I suppose, I also love a man who free. I love a skillful player who frequently had the shirt hanging out. <laughs> That's a good point. And the, and the socks down. There's something like Chris Wadley's always wear his shirt out, didn't he? There's something that I was something appealing about it. My, we talk about the 99, uh, 94 World Cup final. The big thing, it's one of my big memories of him because I was on a, I was on a lads holiday in Crete <laughs> and we watched it in a bar in Crete. And what was amazing was the entire bar wanted Brazil to win. Nobody yeah. wanted Italy to win. And he was in tears, wasn't he? Was he one of the ones in tears, Baggio? At the end? I know Beresi was crying. It was hardly fit as well, the poor bloke. Yeah, and it was, and, and I suppose it's kind of sad that that's probably one of the biggest dominating images of his career is that it's miss, deep. and then the. But the other thing is, you think if he scores, not so much. The thing about the penalty, there's a bit of a myth about a penalty because even if he scores, they've got a kick to win it. So, like Barresi and Massaro had also missed. Um, but also, he had a chance when he won two, I think, was in extra time. And he hit a really weak shot at Tafarel. Like he was knackered before the game, never mind after 100 minutes in that heat. But if he scores the winning goal in that final, like it's every bit as big as Maradona. His contribution was astonishing because not only did you have the great story where he's taken off after 20 minutes against Norway because they had a goalkeeper sent off. Then he scores two, obviously, in the second round against Nigeria, one in injury time, I think, to keep him in the tournament. Late widow against Spain and the great goal two in the semi and if he scores in the final like that is on a level with Maradona and instead he's, he's not quite a foot yeah, yeah. he's not a footnote but you know he's he's it just shows how fine the margin well, is. he's, seen as, he's seen as a tragic figure isn't he Rather yeah than exactly a, a, a... and ultimately in a more kind of simplistic um, environment he's seen as the man who cost it to that World Cup which is astonishingly harsh. And then he, then he he comes back, doesn't he, as well in the '98 World Cup? Yeah, I he didn't go. To, he didn't go to the Euro '96, did he? Probably no, he didn't. Saki had decided to Saki had had one of his eccentric spells, and well, imagine they did have him fair as they had Zola, yeah. Del Piero, yeah, so, and Machine. Yeah, I, know, so and it's, I know it's easy to say only, but he only had 56 Italy caps. I, I yeah. it should you know in my mind, he's such a player. It should be more. What I would say is that in that period that. There were quite so many international games. If you look, mm. if you go back 10 years even further, like a lot of great players, uh, Brazilian players, would only win like 30, 40 caps. Um, but having said that, every, like all the managers dropped him at some stage, didn't they? Saki certainly did soon yeah. after. Um, and even before that, he played under, I think, played under Vicini, obviously, at Italian 90. Then I think, I, I can't remember exactly when Vicini left, but he would have been him at some stage. They all did, which I find really interesting because... He's just a beautiful player. And also his solo runs as well. There's one at Napoli in 89-90 when he just floats the length of the field. Like, he doesn't even touch the sides. It's just so elegant and graceful. Good watching. He, he, he didn't... Um, that Obviously, when England were in the World Cup qualifying group with with uh, with Italy, obviously it was yeah. Zola who scores that goal at, um, at, Wembley. at, at Wembley. And then yes, you go right. to the, 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 Rome, the Rome game where the, the nil-nil... 
I'm pretty sure that Baggio wouldn't have been involved in that. So, you know, it's Christian no, Vieira who's missing that that last minute header. So, yeah. he, but he got into the 98 World Cup squad. How, how, how did he manage that? Didn't he have a great season at? Um, it wasn't Brescia, was it? Where did he go? He had a great season somewhere where he'd gone after Milan. Oh, Bologna. Right. That was it, Bologna. It had a yeah, it had a really good 97, 98 season. Um, but after they went to Inter, did okay, and I think he kind of drifted away. Then he had his great. Uh, Twilight at Brescia, and I'm not quite sure when he last played for Italy, but obviously he had one of those um, redemptive moments, didn't he, for, for Italy? Didn't he? He scored a last minute penalty uh, in the 98. Uh, yeah, late Chile, penalty. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like sort of Stuart Pierce-ish kind yeah. of. And he, he also he, he still loved Fiorentina, didn't he? Didn't he refuse to take a penalty against Fiorentina for Juve? He did for Juve, yeah, that led to a big storm. Uh, yeah, um, you know, in a very yeah, as, as he it was, seemed, but yeah, but he it, seemed to have a very kind of quiet dignity. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I read a nice thing about Alistair Cook where someone said he kind of makes you want to be a better person, and I, can, I know it's a bit wanky, but I kind of got away <laughs> about Adjay. It's just like most of us are such you know Egypt's and behave with no dignity at all i know i do but you see someone like him and everything he went through and kind of always retain that quiet dignity i thought that was yeah really impressive it, it must be the buddhism <laughs> that's what I've tried, that. I've tried that it didn't work <laughs> trying to give it up yeah <laughs> so there you go a little a little few memories about roberto badger what we loved about him um what did you love about roberto badger and have you got any suggestions for our legend section if you wanted to have a bit of a chat about something or other then let us know that is it for this week thank you jacob Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Cheers. We will see you all soon when we'll be back with another episode of your chat about old football. Thank you very much. Goodbye.